thank you to all of you. Um, I think it's really, really helpful for us to be able to come together and share these memories together, share these thoughts together. And again, for those of you who are not here at the beginning, this is, you know, this is definitely not the official memorial service. That has not yet even been discussed yet, but that will be discussed and planned, and we will have an opportunity to gather with a lot more folks just to celebrate uh, the life of Elliot that the Lord gave us. Um, I see the time, but I definitely do want us to get into the word a little bit. For those of you who are normally not here on a Wednesday night, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, we normally try to end at 830, and that's what we will do tonight. Um, but I think it is also very uh, powerful and good for us to get into the word. So on that table in the back, there were two sheets. Um, and I was debating. I didn't know which one to do. We're not going to get through all of either one of them. But as I was hearing you guys share about Elliot, it became clear which one we're going to do tonight, because Elliot was never a guy that shied away from controversy. I mean, he would say things that, you know, were very controversial. He always let you know exactly where he was coming from. So looking at these two sheets, we're going to look at the one that says the nature of the second coming of Christ, because there is a lot of controversy about the nature of the second coming of Christ. And so I thought, well, Let's do this as a, a tribute to Eliot and his character and his willingness to jump in to controversial topics. Now, the first three points on this, uh, one, two, and three, are not controversial at all. So we'll look at a couple of passages that reinforce these, but it's the fourth, obviously, where a lot of the controversy comes. So basically what this is looking at, this is looking at the nature of the return of Jesus Christ. We all know that Jesus Christ is coming again. For those of you who have been at the eschatology study or joining us on Zoom, you know that it is the greatest hope of the New Testament, the absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is coming again. And the New Testament doesn't necessarily tell us everything that we would want to know about that, but it does tell us a significant amount. And certainly it tells us what is necessary. So just a couple of things to highlight. Um, the first, the return of Jesus Christ is a personal return. And it's very important that we emphasize that because there is a branch of Christianity that talks about the return of Jesus Christ being metaphorical or the return of Jesus Christ just being, you know, as his character and other people advances in this world. And, and as, as folks who take the scriptures seriously, we want to absolutely say no. Jesus Christ is going to return personally. He's going to return in a body. Um, would someone read Acts chapter 1, verse 11 for us? This is one place where this is clearly taught. And again, if you're going to be one of the people that are reading, you need to grab the mic and read into that so the folks on Zoom can hear. And as Gail reminded us, you can't depend on Elliot. Elliot was a great volunteer to read the scriptures, but now someone else has to step in and be bold. So Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Does someone have that for us? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Thank you, Scott, for reading that. So what has transpired is the risen Christ had been appearing to his disciples and to other groups of people. And in Acts chapter 1, Luke records for us how he was bodily taken back up into heaven. And so, of course, the disciples, understandably so, were a little bit amazed at this. 
And so they're kind of standing there looking up at the sky, probably with their mouths open as Jesus is taken back up into heaven in the bodily form that he had. And so an angel appears and says, you know, men of Galilee, why are you staring up here? He is going to return to you the same way that he was taken from you. He will return to you. So we talk about the return of Jesus on the clouds. There's scripture that makes reference to the Son of Man coming on the clouds, Daniel chapter 7. Sometimes that is referring to a second coming. Sometimes it's referring to something else. But here, obviously, he was taken up in the clouds, and that is the way that he is going to return. So we are looking for a personal return of Jesus Christ, not just a sense or a metaphor or anything like that. We are looking for a personal return of Jesus Christ. The second thing is that it will be visible. It will be visible. It will not be something that is hidden. We just got through, uh, did we read First and Second Thessalonians to start? Yeah, we did. We just got through reading Thessalonians. I couldn't remember. And remember, some of the Thessalonians thought that they had missed the return of Jesus Christ. And absolutely impossible. It is impossible to miss the return of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. It doesn't matter what continent you're living in, whether you're living on a mountain or whether you're in a submarine on the bottom of the ocean, whether you're in the middle of the Amazon jungle, whether you're in the middle of the Sahara Desert. If you are human living on this planet, you will not miss the return of Jesus Christ. So any group out there that says Jesus Christ has come, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses say he came in 1914 or something crazy like that. I don't remember for sure. No, he didn't. And in fact, in Matthew 24 that we looked at a couple of times, Jesus said, look, there's going to be a lot of false Christs. There's going to be a lot of false prophets. And people are going to say, you know, look, he's there. And look, he's there. Come out into the desert. No. So would someone read for us Revelation chapter 1, verse 7? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Does someone have that who's willing to read that for us? Um, behold, he is coming on with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Thank you for reading that, Ted. So there it is. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So this will not be something that is only observed by those of us who are believers. It is something that will be visible to the entire world. Now, of course, the next question that a lot of us have is, how is that possible? You know, most of us believe that the Earth is a sphere. I know there's some that believe it's flat. We're not going to get into the astrophysics of that. But those of us who believe the Earth is a sphere, how can it be that the entire world is going to see him? I have no idea. but. For God, it's not going to be a problem. You know, it's not going to be a problem. You know, years ago, I heard some people say, well, with the advance of television, you know, he'll, his appearing will be on television for some to see on the other side of the world. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that's 
I, I don't think so. I don't know how it's going to happen. How, how is Jesus in person who's coming? Remember, he's coming in person. How is he going to come in such a way that the entire world is going to see him? I don't know. But his return will be visible. And it will be spectacular. And that's the third point here. The return of Jesus Christ will be glorious. Would someone look up for us Matthew chapter 24, verse 30? And again, while Karen's making her way to the microphone, this stands in sharp contrast to how Jesus came the first time. Jesus came the first time in tremendous humility. There were angels that appeared, but they only appeared to a handful of shepherds. There was a star that appeared, but it only appeared to a couple wise men. So there was a measure of glory in the first coming of Christ. But for the most part, that glory was veiled. If you looked at the incarnate Christ, remember Isaiah said there was nothing physically about him that made him stand out. He wasn't the tallest guy. He wasn't the most, you know, muscular guy. There was nothing physically about him. But his second coming will be very different. Would you read that for us, please, Karen? And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So Jesus is here giving his final sermon to his disciples before he's going to the cross. He is explaining to them what his return will be like. And he uses the word, it will be in power and it will be in great glory. That second passage there, uh, Revelation 19, 16, but the entirety of that, that opening of, of Revelation 19, we won't read that. But that is another passage that describes the return of Jesus Christ. And it will be in never before seen glory and awe-inspiring splendor. So that's what we're looking for. And again, remember, we've talked about this. This is the thing as believers that we should be looking for, hoping for, longing for, praying for, expecting more than anything else. So, you know, in the light of Elliot's passing, yes, right now, that's a very hard and it's a very grievous and sorrowful situation. Of course it is. Our relationship with him has been disrupted. We will no longer have fellowship with him in this life on this earth. But we should also let the word of God anchor us in that even greater truth. This separation is temporary. This life is temporary. The things of this world are temporary. You know, whether we live to see it or not, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is coming. And he is coming in person. He is coming in great power and great glory. And the entire world will see him. The entire world will see him. And so absolutely, you know, let your heart mourn for the things that are mournful in this life. Jesus himself said, mourn with those who mourn. But as the Apostle Paul wrote to Thessalonians, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. 
we mourn like those who have incredible hope. Yes, of course we mourn because we're going to miss Elliot. You know, we loved Elliot. And, and praise God that we're going to miss him because that shows that we had a significant relationship with him. The people that you don't miss, you know, you probably didn't have much of a relationship with them. But if you really miss someone, if you really have an ache in your heart, that shows you had a significant relationship with them. And praise God for that. You know, relationships are a blessing. Relationships, they're a blessing. So yeah, we're going to mourn. And yeah, we're going to miss him. But not like those who have no hope. We have this incredible hope. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming again. Personally, visibly, gloriously. Okay? All of that is probably pretty clear because that, as far as I know, within the believing church, there's no real controversy over those three points. Um, but this last point, as you can see, it takes up most of the rest of the sheet. And yeah, in 15 minutes, we're not, we're not going to get through all of this. The, the last point is the one that is very controversial. So this is the part of the, the study tonight that's dedicated to Elliot because he was a man that liked controversy at times. So when we look at the return of Jesus Christ, a lot of American evangelical Christians, without even much thought or without even a lot of biblical study, have just come to the, the absolute conviction that the return of Jesus Christ is two-part. And that, you know, we could go into the theological history of that, we won't do that tonight, but for the most part, and you're probably in this group, for the most part, most American evangelical Christians see the return of Jesus Christ in two parts. Now, you see that first subheading there, summary of the two-part view. Now, I could put 150,000 pages in front of you, and you wouldn't cover the gamut of variations and details that are given to the two-part return of Jesus Christ view. But let me just give you uh, a, a simple summary of it. So the two-part approach, so basically what this view believes is that the return of Jesus Christ is separated into two distinct comings. So the first one is often referred to as the rapture. And again, back in the 80s or 90s, a series of movies was made based on some books that were written. And, you know, the rapture was like a, a huge part of one of the movies. I saw one of the movies. I forget which what it was called. But I just remember, like, you know, they were in a plane and the rapture comes and all of a sudden no one's flying the plane because both of the pilots were Christians and the plane's going to crash. And, I mean, it was a pretty gripping movie. I, you know, I, maybe not now because it's probably 40 years old. But basically, in the two-part view, the initial return of Jesus Christ is what is referred to as the rapture. And basically, the rapture is Jesus comes part way to earth. He doesn't come all the way. He comes part of the way to earth. Then all the believers on the planet are raptured up or are taken up with him. So all the believers alive on the planet at the time of the rapture are taken up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that's a phrase in Thessalonians. So they are taken up to meet the Lord in the air. 
And then what the two-part view postulates is that Jesus and all those believers who have been raptured up with him, they go back to heaven. So they return to heaven. And that's why, again, in those movies, uh, I don't know, did anyone see those movies? They, I think they came out in the 80s. So that's why all of a sudden the, the world is filled with all of these really confused people. You know, where did all these folks go? And what are we supposed to do? And they're kind of groping their way through. But the one scene that I loved the most is there was some, you know, apostate pastor who had this chart that he just like pulled down. And this, is, this was in the movie that explained everything that was going on in like great detail. And I was like, well, good thing there was at least one apostate pastor to lead all of the, the lost folks back. To, well, anyways, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be joking as much as I am about this. But anyways, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting movie. It was a good movie. So what they believe then is that the, the, the believers on the earth at that time, they meet the Lord in the air, and then Jesus and all of them go back to heaven. Most of the two-part folks then believe there is a seven-year period that is known as the Great Tribulation. But there are some that believe that it's a three-and-a-half-year period, not a seven-year period. And when we talk about the millennium, we'll get into that more. We won't get into that tonight. And this is where things get you know, really bad on earth, and this is where people really suffer and most of all, the horrible stuff that's described in the book of Revelation, that's when all of this comes to pass, is during the seven-year tribulation. But praise God, all the true believers are already up in heaven with Jesus, so we don't have to go through that. And again, this is, this is generally what two-part folks believe. Then after seven years, Jesus comes a second time. And they don't call this the rapture because they've already called the first part the rapture. So they just call this the second coming. And this is where Jesus comes all the way down to earth. So he makes it all the way to earth. And at this coming, you know, this is where he takes care of a lot. But this isn't the final. Because what the two-part folks usually believe is that at the second coming, then he establishes his thousand-year reign also known as the millennium, which again, we'll talk about sometime probably in March. I don't know when we'll get there. Um, a lot of ink has been spilled about the millennium. Amazing, because there's only three verses in the Bible that use the word millennium, but from the amount of ink spilled on it, you would think like every other chapter in the Bible is devoted to the millennium. But anyhow, so then the thousand year reign begins and earth is pretty good, but it's not perfect during this thousand year reign. Christ is reigning on earth during the thousand years and things are definitely a lot better than now, but they're not perfect because at the end of the thousand years, there's one final rebellion and that's where Jesus does away with all evil once and for all and throws Satan and all of the uh, cohorts of the kingdom of darkness into the lake of fire. That's a really quick general sort of, let's take a, a step way back summary of the two-part return of Jesus Christ. The first part being the rapture, where Jesus Christ comes, all believers are taken up to meet him in the air, they go back to heaven, either for seven years or for three and a half years, things on earth get really, really awful, then at the end of the seven years, Jesus Christ comes a second time. 
So what they believe is that as you're reading the New Testament, when the return of Jesus Christ is being referred to, it's either referring to this or it's being referred to that. Now, right off the bat, what I would say is, if you are reading the New Testament and you don't already assume this, it's really not obvious at all. If you're just reading the New Testament, if you don't already assume this, it really is not obvious at all. I mean, I, I don't have one single clear passage where Peter or Paul or John or Jesus himself specifically says, I'm coming back twice. It's just not there. So what has happened, which oftentimes happens within Christianity, this has sort of developed, and a lot of the American evangelical church believes this, and so they just read that into. So now every time the return of Jesus Christ is mentioned, they're trying to discern, well, is this the rapture, or is this the real second coming? Not because there's necessarily anything absolutely clear in the verse itself that says, hey, this is his first second coming, or this is his second second coming. Because again, I believe if you read the New Testament on face value, there's no real clear passage of scripture that makes this distinction. They're pulling together a lot of different threads and coming up with this. Now, <clears throat> just my own personal history, for years and years and years, this is what I absolutely wholeheartedly believe. I mean, in the 80s, I was a huge Hal Lindsey guy. I read all of Hal Lindsey's books, and I said, you know, Hal Lindsey's my guy. Hal Lindsey's absolutely a, a, a pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalist. But the thing was, it never completely made biblical sense to me. I mean, I was always trying to follow him. He didn't quite have the chart that that guy in the movie had, the apostate pastor had, but it was close to that. And I was always trying to pull together the threads and try to figure out, okay, when, when, when is he talking about the rapture? When is he talking about the other second coming? It never all really made that much sense to me. And then when I went to seminary, and yeah, that's true, seminary corrupts you in a lot of different ways. When I went to seminary, seminary taught the return of Jesus Christ very differently. But, but for me, praise God, they taught it very simply. What they taught is Jesus Christ comes again, and that's it. The end of this age, and we are ushered into eternity. And as I started to read the New Testament with that lens, not trying to put this lens on the New Testament, but just trying to really read the New Testament, that made so much more sense. If you're reading Peter or Paul or John, or I think even when you're reading Jesus himself in the Synoptic Gospels describing his return, to me what seems the most straightforward reading is Jesus comes again, and that's it. It's glorious. It's personal. It's visible. The whole world sees it. I, I just don't I, don't, I don't see there's sort of like a, a hidden initial second coming. You know, those passages that we just read, they'd all have to be this and not this. But does any of them really say this is the second second coming, not the first rapture? No, they just say when Jesus comes again, it's, it's, it's like this. So to me, when I was introduced to the possibility of what the New Testament actually teaches is a single event return of Jesus Christ. He comes again, and that's it. 
I was like, wow, I, I like that because it's simple. But of course, that's not the real reason. I think it's actually what the New Testament teaches. I think it's actually what the New Testament teaches. Now, I know for a lot of us, that's going to fry our circuits because American evangelicalism has embedded this concept of a rapture that precedes the second coming. And for a lot of us, that's just what's been ingrained in us. And again, Jesus could come again and I could be totally wrong. I, I'm, not, I'm not standing over here saying this is absolutely 100% the truth. But I just, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is right because I don't think the New Testament actually teaches this. I think the New Testament actually teaches Jesus comes once and that's it. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for. Well, we're almost out of time. Let's just quickly look at the second point because we're not going to go into the details of the second point, but just to, to kind of establish this. Okay, you see here the second point after the summary of, of the two-part view. So this is actually point A on the sheet. There are some words that the New Testament uses to label or name or describe the return of Jesus Christ. Um, one of them you may be familiar with, the, the, the parousia or the parousia, which is simply the Greek word for coming. The second word is apocalypsis, which we get the word apocalypse, the book of Revelation, that's its Greek title, the revelation, so the revealing of Jesus Christ. Another one is his appearing, epiphania. Uh, we have an English word, right, Ted? Uh, an epiphany means, wow, something came to me, just like appeared to me. So these are some of the Greek words that the New Testament uses to label or name or describe the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the folks who adhere to a two-part return of Jesus Christ, they have actually gone through and they've said, this verse is the rapture, this verse is the second coming. This verse is the rapture, this verse is the second coming. So these this distinction that's being made here is not by those who are critical of this. This is actually by folks who adhere to this. So in other words, that first column under rapture, this is verses that folks who adhere to a two-part system say are referring to the rapture. Then that second column, the second coming, again, this is folks who adhere to a two-part return of Jesus Christ. They say, this is not the rapture, this is the second coming. So again, this is not folks who are critical of this position like me. This is folks who are actually saying, this is what the New Testament teaches. So all this point is making is, there's absolutely nothing in the vocabulary that the New Testament uses to make that distinction. So the word parousia, according to the two-part view, Sometimes it means the rapture, but sometimes it means the second coming. The word apocalypsis, according to the two-part view, sometimes it means the rapture, sometimes it means the second coming. The word epiphania, sometimes it means the rapture, sometimes it means the second coming. So all this point is saying is there is nothing in the vocabulary that the Holy Spirit inspired the human authors of the new testament to use that makes this distinction 
because this is the exact same words that are used to describe what they call the rapture are also used to describe what they call the second coming. So the first thing that maybe makes us a little bit less certain that this is what the New Testament teaches is simply the fact that there is not unique vocabulary. Now, again, that's not the only problem that I have with this, but to me, that, that makes me pause because if this really is a distinct two-part coming, wouldn't it be possible or maybe even likely that different vocabulary would be used? To me, it's, it's more than just a little bit interesting that the exact same vocabulary is being used by the New Testament authors to describe these two different events for folks who adhere to the two-part view, okay? Does that, does that make sense? I realize that's a little bit technical and, you know, I don't expect any of you folks to be reading the Greek, but it's just basically making the argument that there's nothing in the vocabulary of the New Testament that uses specific words to make this distinction, okay? But it is after 8.30, so we got to widen things down for tonight. Um, but we will jump back into this. Um, some of you know, actually, day after tomorrow, uh, I'm going to take off to Peru again. Uh, the Lord has opened a door of opportunity for me. Again, I'm very excited to go. Certainly would greatly appreciate your prayers. Uh, this time, I'm going to try two weeks instead of one. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not super convinced that was the right choice, but David Pepper, the guy who helps arrange this, was very excited about it and said, you know, do two weeks. I said, well, okay, we'll try two weeks. So anyways, two weeks from tonight, I'll still be in Peru. I probably won't have any voice because I'll be in the end of my second week. Um, so the next time that we are going to meet on a Wednesday is Wednesday, February the 1st, Wednesday, February the 1st. But of course, as that time gets closer, we will send out an email to remind you of that. And we will continue with the rest of the sheet and continue to unpack this very much debated uh, issue. And I would encourage you, if you have any you know, desire or interest, you know, avail yourself of the incredible resources that are, are there and do a little reading on this, you know, pick a guy who's a staunch, you know, two-part, you know, theologian and, and, and read something that he or she has written, then pick someone who looks at it a little bit differently and dive into that. You can find so much amazing material online, and it gets you just a little bit more familiar with, with some of the issues. But Lord willing, on February 1st, we'll go over the rest of the sheet and look at some of other passages that refer to the nature of the return of Jesus Christ. But let's close with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we just want to thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to be together tonight. Thank you for the opportunity just to be to begin and to continue to reflect on the blessing uh, that Elliot was to us. Thank you also, Lord God, just for the, the incredible encouragement that we receive as we dive into your word. And Lord Jesus, we are just so grateful that you are coming again, that you are coming again. And if it's in our lifetime, that's wonderful. And if it's beyond our lifetime, that's wonderful because it won't, it won't change the certainty that you are coming again. And Father, I pray that even as we dive into some of the controversy that exists within your church, 
the church that you love, the church Jesus that you died for, the disagreement that continues to exist. I pray that even as we study the scriptures and, and make decisions for ourselves, that we wouldn't let that ultimately make enemies of our brothers and sisters who think differently than us, that it wouldn't create hostility or animosity or thinking that we are right and they are wrong, but Lord, that we would hold on to what we believe is true in your word with humility and with love. Because Lord, one of the things that you have deposited in living word is that we are to be bridge building within your kingdom. We are not to be digging our heels in and entrenching ourselves in secondary issues and using that to bring division within the body of Christ. We are to be representatives of you who are able to fully embrace sisters and brothers that think differently about some of these secondary issues. So when it comes to the, the nature of your return, Lord Jesus, each one of us should and has to make a decision about what we believe the scriptures teach. But as we do that, Lord, may we not use that as a opportunity to bring about argument or discord or, or hostile disagreement within the body. Because Jesus, you died to make us one. You died to make us one. And whatever our theological differences, for all of us who are putting our trust and salvation through Jesus alone, there is a unity there that's greater than any difference we have. And so may we walk that out. But thank you, Lord, again for the opportunity to be together tonight. For everyone who's here in person, bless them as they head home. Give them safety. Give us all a good night's rest for the challenges and opportunities that tomorrow will bring. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, again, thank you all for being here. Wonderful, wonderful to be together. And Lord willing, we will see you all on February 1st. February 1st. Have a great night.